At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to join us in our message series and dive deeper into what God's Word has for us today. Okay, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the gift of using our lives to build your church. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for giving us those opportunities uh, earlier this week to go out into the community and serve and do it together and do it without expecting anything in return. Father, we want to do more of this. Help us grow in our ability to, to give, to not jam-pack our schedules to the point that we're just unable to go and do something for uh, someone without expecting or receiving anything in return. Father, we do pray that you provide the workers that we need for the good work you're doing in our city through our church family. Father, thank you for the 26 that have responded, Father, and, and we're just praying and believing you. You will provide the 100 that we still need. Father, I pray that they would um, just be able to come in. For those who fear for their time, uh, free them to trust your replenishment. For those who fear commitment, Father, increase their faith to see the freedom of belonging to the body of Christ. And Father, now as we give ourselves to your word, our hearts rejoice. It was so great to be able to sing those songs, Lord. Wow, one name, one voice, one king, Jesus. How good. Lord, we come to know you by means of your word. We ask you to remove all distractions, external and internal, that we may truly meditate commune with you by means of this text of scripture. Spirit of God, come and be our teacher. Open our minds, illumine our hearts that we may set apart Christ as Lord. Help me in my weakness to do justice to the power, the wisdom, the beauty of your word. We love you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity and it's striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. And what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who are over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. The word of the Lord. So we continue our series, Smoke and Mirrors, Deciphering Truth in a World of Truths. We're looking at the first two chapters of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. The truths we're looking at are really illusions, but they pose as truth. Last week, we looked at naturalism, the belief that all that exists is what we can see and um, 
measure and study by the scientific method. Now notice that the illusion is not the scientific method. The scientific method itself is a gift from God and a great help to humanity. As a father of four children, our doctor is on speed dial. No, she's not, but she might as well be because we text her all the time. But so the, you know, the, the scientific method is a great gift. The illusion comes in the religion that takes the scientific method and attempts to make uh, the totality of reality just nature and science, excluding God, even though by definition, God is outside of the scope of science because God is supernatural and science rightly does not deal in the supernatural. You cannot put God in a Petri dish. And so as a student or practitioner of science, you need to know when you're dealing with science as a field of study and science as a religion. Science is a great field of study, but a poor religion. Today we're looking at intellectualism. This is the belief that salvation comes by education. Now, when I say the word salvation, there's an unhelpful way that Christians hear that word because we merely hear it as a religious word and therefore as something that only religious people concern themselves with, whether Christian or Jewish or Muslim. Not true. Salvation, the philosophers have been telling us for a long, for a long time, salvation is the quest of every human being. Salvation is the quest of the teen obsessed with an acne cream. The quest of the professor obsessed with publishing the next journal article. The quest of the NBA player obsessed with improving his numbers. Deep down, we know, everyone knows that we're just one misstep, one bad decision, one uh, unfortunate event from spiraling down into irrelevance and death. And so we channel all of our energy toward that salvation, toward avoiding irrelevance and death. That's the quest that each one of us is engaged with. So all your friends, all your coworkers, all your family members, religious or not, are on this quest for salvation, however they define it. And so intellectualism is the belief that salvation comes by education. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe in education between kindergarten, elementary, middle school, high school, undergrad, master, and PhD studies. I spent 23 years in the classroom. I think I learned more in kindergarten than in the PhD, but I forgot what I learned, you know. But 23 years. I mean, just that number alone makes the point that the teacher in Ecclesiastes is making today. After all those years in the classroom, you'd hope I'd be wiser. Sorry to disappoint. Sorry to disappoint. So I believe in education, just not as a way of salvation. So let's get into the question that we have for today. Why does more wisdom lead to more questions? Why does more wisdom lead to more questions? Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. Many scholars suggest that the preacher here is someone who's taking on the persona of King Solomon, but not Solomon himself. The reasons for that conclusion are that the teacher speaks as if he had many predecessor kings before him in Jerusalem. For example, chapter 1, verse 16. He says, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. 
Chapter two, verse seven. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. Chapter two, verse nine. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. But here's the thing. Solomon only had one king uh, who preceded him in Jerusalem, his father, David. King Saul did not reign from Jerusalem. And so the teacher seems to be removed quite some time from the time of King Solomon. Also, uh, after the first three chapters, the similarities between the teacher and King Solomon uh, are less obvious. For example, chapter 4, verse 1 says, Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. So again, if the teacher was the king, he would have power to do more for the plight of the oppressed. And so as this teacher is in pursuit of that uh, larger question of gain, as we talked about last week, what uh, what do humans gain from their toil, especially as it relates to wisdom and riches and pleasures and achievements? There was no better case study than King Solomon. He had the riches, the the achievements, the works, the pleasure, and he too came up empty in this task quest. Chapter 1, verse 13, he goes on, and I apply, so here's what he did. I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. And so he says, I applied my heart. That's another way of saying toil. I toiled. I went after it. I went seeking after it, searching for it. Um, So what did he do? He went after all that is done under heaven to understand it. And he did that by means of wisdom. So he studied nature as we saw last week. He studied human behavior. He studied time. You know the passage in chapter three, there's a time for everything and so on. He studied God. He studied fate and death. He even studied wisdom. So he studied by means of wisdom, but he studied wisdom itself. And the result, his conclusion after all of this studying is in the middle of verse 13, it's an unhappy business, he says. It's an unhappy business that God has given humankind to be busy with. At the end of the book, here's how he puts it. Chapter 12, verse 12, he says, of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. I was listening to a professor from Harvard and she was talking about millennials and Gen Zs Uh, and comparing them to previous generations of students. And she said there was one trend that she noticed among the younger uh, students now, and that is that uh, that they're asking for less homework. (laughs) They want less homework. And she's also noticing that the faculty are uh, wanting to give them less homework. Now, just think about this. I heard and I was like, what in the world? Like I never, I never knew, like who would have thought that I could have just walked up to one of my professors and asked Professor Albright, you know, that was the name of my Psych 101 professor. I think that's probably still his name, but I, I walked up to him and I said, you know, I like Professor Albright, I still wanna get A's, but I want less homework. I will only take you seriously if you give me less homework. 
Like that just sounds ridiculous, like so ridiculous. What I did see, and I know many of you know this because you have been intensely in different fields of study, is what he says at the end of the book. There's much, with much study, there is weariness to the body. It's hard. I know some of you say like, I don't have a life right now. I'm up to here in studies. He also says of ma making many books, there is no end. Any, I, I love books. Any book lovers here? Let me see. Yeah, okay, good. Yeah, books are great, you know. I'm a pretty disciplined person, but if there's, if there's an addiction that I might have, it's to books, you know. But, but, but it's depressing because it's much faster to buy books than to read them. <laughs> And it's much faster to read them than to write them, right? And so what the teacher is saying here is that there's no end to this quest for wisdom and for knowledge. It's all vanity, he says. It's, it's fleeting, it's elusive, it's empty, it's futile. Why? Verse 15, he says, what is crooked cannot be made straight. And what is lacking cannot be counted. So there are twists and there are gaps. Gaps in knowledge all the time. There's always twists. There's always gaps in our attempt at mastering the world, mastering reality. Case in point, the, the, the endless articles and divergent perspectives on COVID in the last year have been dizzying, right? I mean, it's just, thing. There's, there's always twists. There are things we don't know or understand. And next year, something else will be what we still don't understand or know. Something will be crooked and we'll try to make it straight. Something will be lacking and we'll try to count it, but we can't. We try. Oh, yes, we keep trying, but it just, it, it eludes us. So why does more wisdom lead to more questions? Because it's an unhappy business that God has given to humankind to be busy with. It's like, it's like when you have a, a Russian doll. You guys know a Russian doll? You know, a little doll, it's very colorful, and you open it in half, and there's another one in there, smaller, and you keep opening and opening, and the thing seems to never end. It's like more and more, except in reverse, right? Because as, as we try to search more uh, about this world, we open, and what we open is larger and larger, and larger, and we realize, wow, there's less that we understand, there's less that we know about the brain, and so on. Now we have specialists for like every little part of the body, and within a specialty, there's specialists within that, and on and on it goes, and we feel like we're so close. Utopia is just right around the corner, but are we? Are we doing any better? Are we more just? Are we more selfless? Are we more fulfilled? How are we doing with race relations? For all of our education, we still keep blaming them, whoever them is. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 13 says, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? And so the teacher gave himself to all that is done under heaven. And then, you know, he came up empty with that search. So then he turns to wisdom itself. It's kind of like if you work with computers and through computers, you study the world, okay? So I know the world is kind of a big field of study, right? But that's your thing. And you use computers to help you understand the world. But then you decide, you know what? Forget the world, I'm going to look at the computer itself. I'm going to study the computer. That's what the teacher is doing now. He says, I was looking at everything that's done under heaven by means of wisdom. That got me nowhere. I'm going to look at wisdom itself and see if I can get somewhere. So he's sharpening his tool of understanding. And so we come to verse 16. 
And he says, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who are over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. So he goes after wisdom relentlessly. He says like more than anyone else before him, but he still comes up empty. But look at how he comforts himself with his knowledge. He says, I acquired great wisdom, more than all who came before me. I had great experience with wisdom and with knowledge. Do you see how, what's he doing? He's puffing himself up with his wisdom, with his knowledge. Saying like, oh man, I had amazing wisdom. More than any that came before me. He's resting in that wisdom to prop him up, right? As a salvation from irrelevance, from death. You know, it reminds me of the Pharisee in Jesus' parable in Luke 18. Remember the guy that comes up to the, uh, to the temple to pray. And he says that he stands by himself. He's like, clear out everybody. So it's just between me and God. And he comes with great pomp and says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all that I get. That guy, remember him? You know, I've said before that the guy is not praying. That guy is not praying. He's congratulating himself. He's trying to impress God. He's giving God like a list of his resume. But I wonder how much we do that. You know, this is a very well-educated room. I mean, I'm just looking at you guys. I mean, there's just like degrees everywhere over here. Which is awesome. It means there's a lot of skill here, a lot of gifting, and therefore the, the capacity for a lot of good to be done to humanity by means of us, these people right here, so good. I mean, you guys, you teach, you administer medicine, you design the coolest cars, you put together complex deals, you grow companies, you perform surgeries, you fix homes and roads, you fly airplanes. I mean, the gifting. The gifting. But I wonder how much we use that gifting to puff ourselves up. Because remember, we're all on this quest for salvation. Salvation from irrelevance. Salvation from death. But how do we know? How do we know how we're doing in this quest? You know how? We compare ourselves to the next guy, to the next person and say, well, at least, at least I'm better than her. At least I'm better than him. We do this all the time. We don't quite say it because we know that it sounds, it sounds bad. You know, like as soon as it comes out, we're like, ooh, that just sounds nasty. We have people out there that talk like this and we're like, they grate on us, right? Oh, but in here, how often, how much have we done it? I've definitely in here said, I, well, well, I'm a better preacher than him. For sure, I've said that. How nasty is that? But just think about what kind of props, what kind of tools do you use to comfort yourself from irrelevance and death? Now, let me make a side comment here. As, we, as I said earlier today, we're trying to beef up our volunteers so we can keep doing this. We can keep welcoming the people that God is bringing into our church family. And it's a wonderful thing. And we need you. We need you. 
You know, the church, this church will never feel to you like your home, your church home, until you come in and use your skills and your time to build it. You'll always kind of feel like an outsider. But when you start serving, you will go from feeling like a, like a consumer on Sunday to a co-laborer with God. And so come on in and help us. And there are so many of you who have been serving so faithfully through the years, even through COVID. And then there's 26 of you that have signed up so far to help. So great. You know, there is one, one couple, uh, just real quick, you know, uh, Justin and Sam. Justin and Sam, these guys serve on our safety team and they're married, they do it together, they do it humbly, they do it joyfully, it's so wonderfully, uh, wonderful. Um, and, um, and you know, they were saying to me like, you know, we're, we're glad that we're able to serve where the church needs us. That was so great, they're like, we're glad we're able to serve where the church needs us. You know, they didn't say, we're upset that we have to serve. No, it's now their posture. They're like so excited to be able to do this. But here's the thing, you guys. You know, Justin and Sam, they're, they're married and they both have PhDs. Yeah, and they serve on our safety team. And they both have PhDs in engineering. So these guys are smart. They have PhDs in engineering, both of them from MIT. Yeah. I mean, that's a lot of brain power. You know, I wish I could just be a, a fly on the wall in their house so I could watch how they fix marriage problems at dinner. <laughs> right? I mean, that'd be so great. You know, it's like, well, I will refer you to the article by Bronson and Cromwell, 1972. <laughs> no, you didn't. You know, like, I'm sure they don't do that. But can you just imagine? But, but they're, they're so humble. They're so humble. They're just happy to serve. You guys, here's the thing. Our knowledge puffs us up. It can puff us up. I don't know one person who's educated who has not had to wrestle with not being puffed up, getting a big head from their knowledge, but the gospel brings us down so that we are able to do menial tasks, humble work. So don't hoard your time away from Jesus and his body. Don't do that. Come in, serve, co-labor with God. There is nothing more beautiful, more important that God is doing in this city than spreading the name of Christ. Remember, one name, one voice, one king. We need you. Yes, you can applaud for sure for the king. For the king alone. Well, the teacher puffed himself up with wisdom, but here's what he found. Look at what he found in verse 17. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Okay, so here's an important distinction. It's not that wisdom is useless. It's that the teacher sees the limitations, the limits of wisdom. Last week, we talked about the difference between toiling after gain and receiving from God. Well, receiving from God doesn't mean that we are lazy or passive. It's kind of like sitting there in our house, like, well, I'm just waiting for God. We need to receive from God. He's not giving me anything, so I'm not doing anything. That's not what it means. We've talked before about the parables that Jesus tells, where he expects us to multiply and a ton what he gives to us. He's like, hey, here's the seed I'm giving you, grow it. 
So what receiving from God means rather is that we will not strive in life to live out someone else's narrative, someone else's story, but rather we let God take us wherever he will. I don't think we're aware how much of our striving in life comes because we're trying to live out someone else's story, someone else's narrative. I mean, this happens often, right? Well, my dad made lots of money, so I need to make lots of money. Or my dad made no money, so I need to make lots of money. Why? Says who? Maybe money was or was not your dad's thing. But God could have something totally different for you. Totally, completely different. Something, uh, maybe he has service for you. Maybe he has art. Maybe he has missions for you. So don't mistake receiving from God for passivity or laziness. It's far from it. It has everything to do with trusting who God has made you to be, to discovering that in him, and then just going and joyfully doing that and just letting him, hey, he's just gonna keep guiding me where he wants me to go. I'm not gonna live someone else's narrative or story of what my life should be. So there's a difference there. Well, something similar applies to wisdom. When the teacher comes to wisdom, he says, it's not that wisdom is useless. No, it's that there are limits to wisdom. And so he says that he set out to study wisdom in contrast to madness and folly. And he realizes, of course, that wisdom is better. Wisdom is better. In chapter 213, he says, I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. So he definitely appreciates the relative value of wisdom. But he still says, it's a striving after the wind. Why? Even wisdom, which is better than folly, still is striving after the wind. Why? Verse 18, for in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. You know this. The more you know, the more problems you see, the more depressing things look. You know, knowledge looks very different from the outside like something you can master, kind of like marriage. <laughs> and then you try your hand at it, and it's elusive. Those of you who are married, you know what I'm talking about, right? This is what happens. You know, like I, I saw this when I was doing the doctorate. It was so humbling because I realized, like, man, the more I got into stuff, the more I was reading and all of that, the more I was writing, the more I realized that, you know what? A doctorate is realizing that you know something about one thing and nothing about most everything. That's what it is. It's like, man, I know something about one thing, just something within that thing, but I don't know jack. I don't know anything about most everything. If you ask me questions about most things, I'll tell you, I don't know. I don't know. I have no idea. I have no idea how to do that. It's so humbling, but that's what the teacher is saying. You know, the teacher knows the vexation, the sorrow that comes to those who think hard on the puzzles of life. See, here's the thing, you guys. We are happy to build our lives on illusions, smoke and mirrors. We just, we're happy, just, you know, us common day-to-day -day people, we're happy to build our lives on illusions. I'm gonna get educated and have a career and make money, and save money, and get married, and buy a house, and have children, and buy a bigger house. Oh man, it, it's gonna be so good. It's gonna be so good. I hope so. But that's just not even the half of it. 
That's just not even the half of it. That's an illusion that you've been sold by whoever, your own heart. You see, it's the thinkers of the world who are the truth tellers. It's philosophers like Nietzsche and Camus and Sartre. These guys have been happy to disabuse humanity of their illusions, although happy is not quite the right word to describe these naysayers. But it's these non-Christian thinkers who have seen, and Christian as well, but who have seen a lot of truth and they've ruthlessly shared it. <laughs> they just share it with humanity just to disabuse us from the smoke and mirrors. The problem with those thinkers is that their solutions, the solutions they prescribe are no solutions at all. And so again, we're faced with this fact that the more wisdom, the more questions, and the more vexation. What then is solid reality? To affirm that God has wisdom beyond our understanding. That's where it's at. That's solid reality for us to be able to affirm that God has wisdom beyond our understanding. The way forward for us as humans is not to have more confidence in our faculties of reason, but rather to accept our creaturely limitations and then turn so we may see the work of God. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter eight. Go to chapter eight real fast. Ecclesiastes 8, listen to what he says here. Verse 16. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. God is all-knowing, you guys. God is all-knowing. The highest achievement of human wisdom is to see the hand of God at work in the universe. That's where your wisdom will take you the highest, is to be able to see, to knock at the door of God's wisdom and then to be able to begin seeing it all around the world. Did you, did you hear the triple indictment of our inability, of our limitations, of our creatureliness in that text. Look at verse 17. He says it three times. Man cannot find out. There it is. Man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. He goes on. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. True wisdom will enable you to see your limitations Come to the end of yourself and get there rather quickly that you may turn and see all the work of God. That's true wisdom. And I've known people, I'm sure you have as well, who take forever to get there. They keep trying, you know, bad, bad road after bad road after bad road, getting them nowhere. But they never get to the end of themselves. Whether they're succeeding or failing, it doesn't matter. Either road can take you there if you're not guided by folly. What true wisdom does is allows us to see, hold on, I'm a creature. I will not be able to get to the end of this. I'm turning to God whose wisdom is unsearchable. That is true wisdom. Where are you on that journey? Where are you on that journey? My son and I have been doing this study together. It's taking us forever to finish, but we're trying, you know, we're, we're, we're going. But there's an exercise that the, the study had us do, which would be good for all of you. 
Uh, the exercise had us write down uh, the things that we rely on to make life work the way we want it, okay? So write down everything that we rely on to make life go like, oh man, this, this is the life right here. And so to write all of that, the goal was to help us see and affirm that Jesus alone is enough, that Christ plus nothing is everything. And so, so I wrote down, you know, we started writing down, so I wrote down my wife, my children, my job, my success, my money, my reputation, my skill, my discipline, my health, my youthfulness. <laughs> I know you're like, uh, you're not that young. You can let that one go easy. Okay. So that's what I wrote down. And so we, we prayed for each other, you know, for each other's things. And then we burned the paper up. And it was so good just to see that thing like be obliterated. So good. That would be a good exercise for all of us. But here's the thing. What, what that's trying to help us see is, is Christ really enough? Is he really enough? True wisdom is coming to the end of ourselves that we may turn to God. And when we turn to God, do you know what we find? His goodness. We find his goodness. And I'm not talking about you... Um, you come to church or you believe in God because that's what you grew up with. That's what your parents told you. That's what, whatever, the guy you, I don't know, whatever. No, I mean you as someone with full agency, as a thinking, feeling, willing, doing agent. You turn to God. When you do that, what you find is his goodness. What you find is that God has been always relentlessly after you with his goodness. That's what you're going to see. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is what? Good. Blessed is the man and the woman who takes refuge in him. You guys, the life of true faith begins when we have fewer thoughts of us and more thoughts of God. When we have smaller thoughts of us and bigger thoughts of God. When we start fewer sentences with I and more with God. In other words, the, the life of true faith begins when we place God front and center. You know, the apostle Paul did that. I mean, that's what he was on the journey. We, we, we read Paul like he was almost like Jesus. Paul was on this journey as well of faith, of latching onto what God had uh, grabbed hold of him to do for. And so he's, he's trying to constantly put God at the center, but sometimes he even, he, even Paul catches himself. And so he goes back and says, oh, and he kind of turns it to, to, to put God front and center. One of my best examples of this is in Galatians chapter 4. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul is going on and he's making his argument. And so what he's saying to them is, well, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those who by nature are not gods at all. But now that you've come to know God, how could you turn back to them again? That's the point that he's making. And so he says, before you didn't know God, you were enslaved to idols. Now that you have come to know God... Do not turn to them again. That's his point, except that I left out one part of the verse, my favorite part. And what Paul does there, it's so awesome. What he does is he's saying, so formerly you didn't know God and you were enslaved to these things, but now, this is in verse nine, now that you've come to know God, and then he adds almost parenthetically, or rather be known by God. And then he says, how could you turn back? But did you see that? That is gold. That is awesome. Paul is not content to just say, before you didn't know God, now you know him. Uh-uh. Paul says, okay, you didn't know him, now you know him. Actually, rather, because uh, he couldn't erase 
you know, how he started. And he just, so he just keeps, he adds, no, rather to be known by God. Do you see? What Paul is saying is, now that God knows you, is his point. Now that God knows you, don't turn back to idols, to these things that you know are not God's at all. This is so good. Do you see what Paul is doing? That a life of true faith puts God at the center. What matters most is not that you know God. What matters supremely and eternally and unbelievably is that God knows you. Please let that sink into you. The highest thing is not for you to know God by your wisdom or to love God with all your heart. Good as those things are, the highest thing in your life is that God knows you. God loves you. And when that sinks into your heart, oh man, ceasing, I mean, striving will cease. Just chasing after the wind will stop because there is no greater reality than to know yourself to be known, to be loved, to be pursued by the Almighty God, and to know that He comes after you with His goodness. And so we turn to see God. That's what we're after, you guys. We're, 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 what He's trying to tell us is come to the end of yourself. See your limits that you may turn to the God who knows you and the God who loves you, whose wisdom is unsearchable. And when we do that, when we're able to see the goodness of God that's been forever after us, do you know where God's goodness and wisdom is concentrated to the highest degree? In Christ crucified. That's where you will find until for the rest of your life and then 10,000 years into eternity will not be enough. Where you will find God's goodness and wisdom most intensely concentrated is Christ crucified. So I'm going to read you from 1 Corinthians 1 as we prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper. Today is so special because we get to take the body the blood of the Lord. So yes, you can begin to peel away. But I want you to begin transitioning from just your mind. You've been listening very attentively. I want you to begin communing with God by means of the word as we prepare our hearts to receive the Lord himself by means of the communion. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Church, through wisdom, the world did not know God. And so God did what looks to the world like folly. He sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross, on a cross, the place for the vilest deaths, for the worst criminals. That's what God did. That's what God saw as his wisdom. And so Jews who were into powerful signs, demanding powerful signs, powerful enough to take down Rome, looked at the cross of Christ and said, what is that? And Greeks who relished great eloquence and learning looked at the cross of Christ and said, what is that? But there's a third group. A third group, and oh, I pray that every single one of you be in that third group. A third group made up of both Jews and Greeks. In other words, made up of everyone, black and white, educated, uneducated, rich, poor, man, woman, everyone. That third group are the called of God, the called of God. And they receive the preaching of Jesus Christ crucified and say, the power of God, the wisdom of God. So what do you see when you look at the cross? When you look at Christ crucified, what do you see? Do you see folly? Do you see weakness? Or do you see the power of God and the wisdom of God? Church, Christ crucified is the crown of life. There is no higher thing. It's what that exercise was after that Jed and I were doing. It's Christ plus nothing. I have everything. What is it for you? What are the things that you prop up your life with to make you feel like I count, I matter, I'm not irrelevant, I will not die? What is that? Is it your spouse? Is it your children? Is it your job, your reputation, your skill, your money? What is it? Is it your success? Is it... What? Your beauty, your youthfulness, whatever it is. Name it. So you may confess it and turn from it. Because the almighty God of the universe, all-knowing, the creator of all things, knows you. Church, education won't save you. Our minds, your mind will not save you, which is a great thing. Because all of our minds are on their way to not working very well. <laughs> Human wisdom only leads to more questions and more sorrow. Christ crucified is the power of God unto salvation and the wisdom of God for all who believe. Do you believe? Let's pray. Father, we come to this text Come before you today with the help of the teacher from Ecclesiastes. And we thank you for showing us the limitations of human wisdom. Help us, God. Help us to trust you. Help us to honor you. Help us to know that our lives are not irrelevant, not because of our social media accounts and friends or, or reputation or success or whatever. Because you 
know us. You, the creator of all things, you're not a power out there. You are a person. You are love, and you know us and love us and pursue us relentlessly with your goodness. Thank you, God. Help us know that we're not, we don't have to be afraid of death and strive to conquer death. It's been done. Christ crucified is life. He is life for us. So, Father, I pray that everyone here would find themselves in that third group that Paul talked about. The ones who hear of Jesus Christ crucified and they see your goodness and they see your wisdom and they see your power. And so now as we receive from your hand the body and the blood of the Lord, Father, cleanse us, renew us, and enable us to turn to you and you alone. Church, let's take just a few moments to prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper. take the bread, the body of the Lord given for us. Let's take the cup, the blood of the Lord shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Lord, we love you drink this cup we take this bread as elements tangible symbols that remind us but also prepare us for that meal when we will take it with you when your kingdom comes in all its glory hasten the day and let us all find ourselves there and all the ones we love Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.